Hey everybody, welcome back to the Noel Kassler podcast. Figured I'd open it up with a little dulcimer music and tribute to Joni Mitchell, who we got to see at the Grammys last weekend. It was quite a treat to see her out and looking so good. And I love the tribute that Brandy Carlisle put together. Brandy is an exceptional talent and has sort of turned into the keeper of Joni's legacy, which is no small honor. And I know they think a lot of each other. And Brandy's somebody, you know, that it's been a pleasure to watch, you know, become this huge mainstream sort of musical artist because she was one of my personal favorites ever since she kind of came on the scene and I had all her CDs on my you know, iPhone, it's great sort of heady singer songwriter stuff with almost the ferocity of Pearl Jam, you know, her voice is something to behold and her playing and her writing is just incredible. I even had a baby Collings at one point, which she used to play. And I told her that she, uh, she was cool about it. I got to hang out with her a few times. Steven Stills was a massive fan of hers and he turned me on to her and she came and did a benefit he does every year in LA called Light Up the Blues. And I've done a couple other really cool like charity events with her. I even got to hang out at Paul Allen's house with her and her wife, which was a really surreal experience. Paul Allen being the founder of Microsoft, the sort of brains behind it. And, uh, you know, the guy who got screwed over a little bit by his partner, I forget his name, <laughs> but uh, that's a joke. Bill Gates. But anyway, uh, I remember sitting with Brandy and her wife, like upstairs of this great recording studio that Paul Allen had in his house. Paul passed away a few years ago, sadly, but he had like this incredible recording studio in his house, you know, with all the great amps and all the great guitars and incredible equipment. And he would invite like famous musicians to come over and jam with him, basically, because he could afford it. You know, and uh, it's funny, he had like the same outfit, the same studio on his yacht. And I know guys who had the gig to play with him and they'd he'd take him out to sea essentially and be jamming. And then he'd be like, oh, I got a call. I got to run. You guys just enjoy yourselves. And he'd hop on his helicopter and leave, you know, and these guys would be getting four grand a day to sit there on this dude's yacht. But uh, very cool music guy has the uh, the. EMP experience music project in Seattle. It's like this museum that has all the Nirvana stuff and all the great Seattle bands going back to Hendrix. And uh, anyway, so we're upstairs in his house above this studio one night at this party before this big event at his museum. You know, he sort of had a jam hang at his house and I was standing up there and I got a cup of coffee, you know, obviously I don't drink and I got a cup of coffee and I was standing with Brandy and her wife and they, they had like waiters, you know, like it was fully catered. And the guy uh, handed me some coffee. He's like, you want some half and half? And I was like, yeah, right here. You know, he gives me some half and half. And I was like, oh, man, you guys got that Microsoft money, huh? You got half. <laughs> it, it killed in the moment. And uh, another funny story from that night. I don't know why I'm opening the show with this, but I'm hanging in this house, you know, and Paul's there with us and it's not his main house. You know, it's like the studio outbuilding on his uh, property there. I think it's called Star Island or something, something like that in Seattle area. And I sort of go outside to get some fresh air or something. And I'm walking around and I see, see this glass like building 
you know, it was like a living room made out of glass on all sides. And in it were just these fancy cars, like, you know, Bugattis and like McLarens. I might've told this story on the show before, like the fanciest cars you've ever seen, like 12 of them, you know, with just like a spotlight on each car inside the dude's house, you know, like total, like cool James Bond type stuff. And I remember thinking like, looking around and you just see like hedges and stuff. There's no fences. And I'm like, I can't believe this guy has all this stuff right here. And there's no like security or anything. Right. And as I'm thinking that, like I'm having the thought and I take like two steps forward and all of a sudden a dude just came out of the bushes and was like, sir, you're not allowed to go any further. (laughs) And I was like, Oh my God, he has security, but it's of such a level that you don't even see him. Right. He had like Mossad agents like hiding in the bushes. Like they only appeared when they needed to, which was that's some next level stuff right there. So, anyway, back to the Grammys. It was a lot of fun. I love Billie Eilish's performance. I'm a huge Billie Eilish fan. I hope, uh, you know, it's not obviously the music isn't made for me, but you know, it's not not made for me. It's great music. And I just love the connection she has with her audience. It's the real deal. I watched her perform at uh, Austin City Limits, you know, on TV or whatever. But like you could see how much she cared for her audience and how much her music meant to people. And it brought me to tears because that's truth. That's art, you know, something that people take in and make a part of their lives and their hearts and it enriches their life. And every once in a while between performer and audience, this sort of symbiosis occurs. That's just a magical thing. And it's rare you know, when it's that legit and uh, she's got that, you know, and she's just an incredible performer because she's next level in the way she just doesn't care, you know, like she's just up there. Like she's having fun. I think she's genuinely having fun, you know, and there's not a whole lot of artifice, you know, they put her on a cool set and stuff, but it's not about having a hundred backup dancers and all that. And I'm not knocking that. That's part of the business that I was involved with it fed me and it's show business and that's a show and it's a good thing, you know, nothing wrong with that, but you know, she's that rare performer where you can't take your eyes off her and you just get sucked in, you know, she's feeling it. So I thought it was an excellent Grammys. I know it was long, but man, they just packed in some great performances. Hamish was the director. He's the guy I worked for when I did the Super Bowls. Hamish Hamilton. He's a legendary kind of guy in terms of technology and stuff. So it was nice to see a fun, entertaining award show. I was happy for Bruno Mars. He's somebody who's very legit in my eyes. I've talked about him on the show before. He's the real deal too. So uh, it was good. It was good to see my, my, my old boss Jackson did not win, but he was there. And I think everybody had a good time. So that's it. It was nice to kick off a week that we had (laughs) with a lot of, with a little music, you know, and, then the week started, right? And it was, hey, the week ended on an up note. Let's let's talk about that, you know? Justice Jackson, right? Soon to be, or soon to be Justice Jackson, you know? KJB, right? Kentanji Jackson Brown. If I, nope, did I, I didn't say it right, did I? Or maybe I did. I get it wrong, right? <laughs> Not out of disrespect. I get very weird with initials, but I think I got that right. Anyway, probably the most qualified Supreme Court nominee in my lifetime. You know, I was around when Thurgood Marshall was on the bench. I I wasn't around for his confirmation hearings, but I was around for this, you know, intelligent, impeccably prepared, 
thoughtful woman. And, you know, what struck me about her confirmation hearings, besides the, you know, racist demagoguery of her opposition, was how much passion she had for the law, you know, how much she really believed in the law. And she had a genuine sort of enthusiasm and love for it. And that's what you want, right? That's what you want in a justice, right? Because you want somebody who's going to be fair and like give you sort of every benefit of the doubt that this, you know, these laws that we created are, are meant to be applied equally, you know, and, and with a blind eye in terms of who it's being applied to. And, and obviously that's something we've lost and we've never had a more political Supreme Court. You know, we have criminals on the Supreme Court right now. Clarence Thomas is a criminal, as far as I'm concerned, you know, just for the lying about how much money his wife made, you know, Ginny Thomas made, you know, $680,000 from the Federalist Society over five years from 2003 to 2007. And he didn't report it. He said none when they asked him a year later what the spousal income was. So to me, that's lying, you know, and you know, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's flying around, you know, hobnobbing with GOP, you know, candidates and GOP governors. He's obviously, you know, one of Ron DeSantis's main advisors, a picture just surfaced with him and Herschel Walker and Herschel just this weekend, it surfaced and Herschel's back in the news too. I won't lay into Herschel. Herschel was on the uh, celebrity apprentice when I worked on it. I got a picture with him. You know, he was a nice enough guy. He's not, you know, he he's he's not the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree, so to speak. As a matter of fact, I saw him speaking this morning and he still had his Christmas ornaments up behind him on his mantelpiece, you know, so it might be time to take him down. But, uh, you know, he's being used, you know, he, he's being used by a very cynical and very racist Republican Party at this moment, you know, and, and, and they're trying to replace Raphael Warnock with him. Like, come on, dude. And, and he's two points ahead, you know. CTE is, you know, Herschel Walker. So, and he doesn't live in Georgia either, you know, but anyway, uh, you know, let's, let's keep it on the good news. You know, KBJ is coming to town and it's a good thing. We got to celebrate these victories because there sure is a lot of defeat, you know, and it's hard not to get defeated. It's hard not to get overwhelmed. You know, Trump was having another rally last night. I'm recording this Sunday, right? He had a rally on Saturday night. He had Madison Cawthorn open it for him. You know, between the two of those guys, they got about 220 sexual assault uh, allegations, right? But the right spent the whole week attacking KBJ, saying she was pro-pedophile. You know, she's not pro-pedophile. There's never been a more pro-pedophile than Trump. He's a professional predator, right? He had a contest that was basically like, let's find the hottest teenage girl in every state and get some middle-aged guys to tell us which one they think is the hottest, <laughs> you know, which, what is that? That's code for like, that's the one I'd do. But yeah, me too. All right, Miss Mississippi, it is, you know, that's predatory. Everyone knows Trump's a predator. I've talked about it before. I got friends that he assaulted, you know, and started grooming when they were kids that ended up in Epstein's house. So he's a scumbag. He's a scumbag, scumbag. The GOP is full of them. It's full of predators. There was another guy this week who was one of Trump's uh, finance advisors in the South who just got busted for like, you know, multiple counts of child pornography and child molestation, you know, and I don't even have to get into Denny Hastert, right, who molested a bunch of boys when he was a high school coach. And he was the Speaker of the House in the GOP, 
right? He was a guy who made Clinton's life hell. So, you know, they're obviously hypocrites, but it's like whoever lies the loudest is one who wins these days because people check out, you know, and because the base that the Republicans are pulling for is not the most politically informed group of people that this country has ever produced. Let's be honest, you know, but they're really good at repeating dog whistles, you know, so they'll hear from a buddy at a bar that such and such is pro pedophile. And then they repeat it to their wife and their kids. And then these other guys say it on the bus on the way back to lacrosse practice. And, you know, it, it just takes on a life of its own and you wrap it in a flag and a screaming Eagle. And, you know, and then you put, you know, several billion dollars behind it, courtesy of the Koch brothers and Rupert Murdoch, and you're off to the races. You know, you're well on your way to propagandizing a population that's going to be brainwashed. And at the extreme ends is going to turn into a cult. And that's what Trump created. He's a cult leader. He's got a cult lining up to see him, sending them, you know, sending him their money at a time where who can afford to you know, spare anything. And if you can, why not send it to somebody who's starving, you know, or lost their job or lost their home, you know, or has bombs dropping on them in a foreign land. Instead, Trump's asking you to send it to him. He's not declaring his candidacy, candidacy, and he's having massive rallies and fundraisers. You know, it's insane. And it all comes from that same misinformed public. You know, everybody's sort of reacting to the emotional stuff, you know, and I always attack the right, but it's on the left too. People are getting played just as hard on the left. You know, it's not popular to point it out, but there's a ton of packs and a ton of accounts. Follow me, retweet this, help us raise this money, help us stop this. These people are building their own brands. They're making money off of this when people need to be, you know, safe with their money and sending it where you can really make a difference in a, in a race, not just promoting your favorite Twitter account or something, you know? So there's grifters all over the left too. Everybody's got their little digital dollar sign on their account these days, you know, who, who the ones that are kind of the most active on there, you know, and you, everybody thinks it's all innocent because you're mad and you get pissed off. So you want to donate money. And then you realize, well, I helped somebody pay their mortgage, but I didn't turn a seat. You know, so you got to be careful, you know, Lincoln's project, you know, those guys had $60 million. They split amongst them, you know, well before the election even happened, you know, like, yeah, they mean, well, they're smart guys, but they want to get paid, you know, and there's only so much resource and there's only so much time. And we're in a foot race for democracy right now. The DOJ is basically in a race, you know, with the midterms, right, with the November elections. They take back the House, you know, you have Herschel Walker in the Senate, <laughs> you're going to have a much different Senate. You're not going to have a KBJ to celebrate this week, right? Let alone, you know, 30 Lauren Boberts, you know, and governors like Carrie Lake, who just had a fundraiser at Mar-a-Lago. She's running in Arizona. So, you know, they have like a full battle plan and they're running full you know, speed ahead with their Panzer tanks coming across the fields, you know, and we're sitting there like, hey, let's reach across the, let's reach across the aisle and make friends. No, this is a war, you know, and I'm not saying it's war to demonize the other side. I'm saying they're playing hardball, you know, and we're playing ping pong, you know, and, and not for keeps. So we need to, uh, we need to look at that and we need to understand how imperative it 
imperative it is for you know Merrick Garland to really take some action. It, you know, the statute of limitations are about to expire on the obstruction of justice stuff that Mueller left. Some of it has already expired. Yes, they've you know made overtures that their investigation is expanding, but this like sit back and let it happen. You don't have time because, as I said, in the meantime, they're building an army, they're fundraising, and they're polluting the populace with propaganda in a much more effective way than the Democrats are. Because the Democrats, you know, we tend to infight. We tend to say, oh, the progressives are the reason this didn't pass. You know, the progressives, they ask for too much. And that's why we don't have voter, you know, reforms, which would have been probably the most crucial thing to stop you know, the potential bloodletting that we may have come November, right? And it didn't happen because of two Democrats, because it's Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin, you know, Mr. Colbert, Joe Manchin, you know, who, 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 when he was governor, even before he was governor, he was like a state senator, you know, he allowed this permit for a coal factory, you know, a coal mine and a coal plant, a power plant to be built on top of this mountain. But he made the deal that you could only use the gob that came out of his mines. And if you don't know what gob is, it's G-O-B, gob. It's the lowest form of coal. It's like the coal and the dirt that's left over when you already kind of strip a mine and get all the good stuff. You know, it's like the, the seeds and stems, so to speak. Some of y'all will get that reference. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not even the shake, you know, it's just the like, nothing it's crap but he made uh, a deal with his company that they could only buy that from him in perpetuity you know and he did this like 25 years ago and he's still getting paid maybe even longer it might have been the 80s and uh he's still getting paid he's made millions and millions of dollars you know off of trading on his position then when he was just a state you know politician and then he of course became governor and now he's a senator still beholden to the energy industry and profiting from it on a daily basis and standing in the way of progress, you know, while we have something bearing down on us that's deadlier than any of the pandemics or the wars that we're facing. And they're horrible and I'm not making light of it, but more people died from pollution in 2020 than died of COVID. You know, Bill Kib McKibben has a great article in the March 18th uh, edition of the New Yorker. You should read on that because this, the stats on that stuff are sobering, and we've seeded that battle, it seems. I mean, there's warriors out there every day, but you can see in the public consciousness, we're not all screaming about climate change, you know, and it's all related. You know, this right-wing authoritarianism, don't wear a mask, is designed to get you to not want to take responsibility for the planet, for the planet's health, and for your fellow citizens' health, because they want that defiance. You know, the Republicans don't want reasonable people. They want people that are easy to manipulate. And they don't want people, as I've said many times, getting hip to what's going on with the climate because then they're going to conserve fuel, right? You know, it costs Saudi Arabia 10 bucks to take a, a barrel of oil out of the ground. They sell it for 100 bucks now, thanks to Putin, right? And then the Republicans blame it on Joe Biden. It's not Biden's fault. You know, it's our fault because we're still dependent on this stuff. We can create energy from the sun now. We can create energy from turbines, wind turbines. There's incredible new technology that can use currents, you know, in the water to create energy. There's all kinds of ways 
to get around this and wean ourselves off of this. And we need to, right? But, you know, doing that is going to cut into the, the profit margins of the people that are pulling the strings. And that's not a popular approach. So you get this defiant mentality being sort of, you know, manipulated and harvested in our consciousness. And it's not just in America, it's all over the world, you know, and, and it, it's a shame when you see politicians running on it. The mayor of New York City just tested positive for COVID this morning, right? This guy went to the gridiron dinner in DC last week where 67 people tested positive. So he knew he was exposed to it in a major way, right? And then he spent the week, the last week in New York City clubbing as he does every night and putting his videos out. You know, the guy's trying to become a big star. I get it. You know, I get it. But like he's using the office for self-enrichment, you know, and then he goes to Albany. You know, he goes to Albany knowing he's been exposed to COVID, right? Where are the rest of our government sits, you know, and our governor and lawmakers and exposes them all. And now he's got it. The same guy who just lifted mask mandates in New York City and vaccine requirements. That's insane. You know, we're going to be back to wearing masks by June, right? Like Columbia just instituted, instituted them again today. Got to wear your mask again. It was too soon. You know, we've gone through hell, but you can see when there's money involved, right? People want to forget about it, People, you know, and he was a perfect example of that. That was a greedy, narcissistic politician. It was like, I'm going for that side of the vote. You know, I'm going to get the cops and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, it's scary, but you always have to pay attention to what's underneath, you know, these sort of ideologies and philosophies that we're dealing with now. Right. Because it all comes back to the same thing. It's sort of greed. You know, it's the rampant greed in our political system. You know, Mitch McConnell just said this morning he doesn't want, you know, he doesn't want student debt relief. Mitch McConnell, the guy's wife, you know, was under investigation as transportation se secretary for, you know, giving favors to her family. Her father owns a huge shipping company that happens to ship coal and iron ore to China, you know, ships it out of South America, ships it all over the world. The stuff that's killing the planet was getting special treatment by the United States transfer transportation secretary to the point she was under investigation, right? And of course it was quashed, right? Bill Barr, those boys killed it, right? Because justice only goes so far when there's money involved, when there's big oil and big shipping. Right. So Mitch McConnell's got access to all that. He's got Deripaska's money pumping all this money into, you know, Russell, which is Russia's aluminum company, promising to build all these factories, you know, in Kentucky. Right. He pumps all this money into these Republicans. So, yeah, they don't have to worry about student loans, you know, and, and why why relieve the debt uh, on the on the working poor and people trying to strive and, and most Student loan debt is held by, you know, African-Americans and minorities in this country, right? So that's exactly the population they always want to punish and their own. He doesn't want people in Kentucky getting good educations because then they're going to see through his bullshit. And that goes everywhere that the Republicans hold power. Release the, relieve that debt. What do you care? And, not, and don't even get me started on how draconian the lending policies are. You know, it's insane that those are agencies that had sort of government approval 
to, to make people debtors for life. It's really hard to get out of student debt. Trust me, I know. I've been paying mine since <laughs> the 1996, you know? It's, it, you know, and I, I only pay the interest and I've been paying it forever. That's where you get into the cycle. You're just sending them a couple hundred bucks or more every month to pay off the interest. They love that. That's a perfect scam, right? But these guys are controlling the purse strings. Mitch McConnell didn't have a problem adding a couple trillion dollars to the national debt for the tax cuts under Trump, did he? Right? Which is what a lot of it comes down to. And why you also need to distrust the media, because the people that run these media corporations, they kind of like these tax cuts, too. You know, I tweeted about this a lot this week, but, you know, half of these deals and hires are done with guys sitting out at, you know, at Wingfoot, you know, in Atlantic at some golf club in Palm Beach in the winter or the Hamptons in the summer. You know, Chris Wallace didn't go to CNN because he was disgusted with the rhetoric. He was at Fox for 18 years. It wasn't like they just started saying BS overnight, right? He knew what he was working for. You know, he goes to CNN to get a more, you know, conservative viewpoint there, right? And there's a great clip that came out this week with, you know, uh, Hannah, Hannah Jones, you know, who wrote the 1619 Project. I'm sorry if I got her full name wrong. But, uh, you know, she wrote the 1619 Project, and, you know, which is obviously what started the whole, you know, CRT kind of, I don't want to say kerfuffle, because it's their main gig on the right now is manipulating people that their students might be told the truth about the country they're living in, right? Which is another thing they don't want people thinking about or finding out, you know, and Chris tried to push her on it. And he was like, well, the greatest generation, you know, according to Tom Brokaw, you know, they went and fought World War II. So those guys weren't racist. They didn't come home and behave racist. Yeah, they did. They came home and lynched people. You know, black soldiers who saved their asses many times in World War II had to step off the sidewalk when a white person was walking by. That's disgusting. You know, our armed forces were segregated then in World War II. But he used the example. He goes, some farm boy from Indiana isn't a racist. Some 20-year-old farm boy. What? That, that's the breadbasket of the KKK. That's where it's from. That's like the largest support. And of course, he's racist, you know, and it's well documented how many vets went to lynchings and stuff. Strom Thurmond was a freaking general in World War II, right? But it's that self-mythologizing that the white man and the white corporate interests want to hold on to. And they want to push away any quote unquote radicals that are trying to change America's thoughts. And it's not changing thoughts. It's telling the truth. You know, it's like Howard Zinn, the people's history of the United States. You read that for the first time and you're like, oh, dude, they weren't telling me anything about how this went down, at least not in my, you know, pretty mediocre public education, you know, like, you know, if I went to Horace Mann, I would have probably heard about Columbus in a little more detail, you know, but, you know, in, in my, you know, junior high schools and, and public elementary schools, we, you know, they give us a little song and, and we sing about this great Italian guy who discovered America, you know, and they skip over the genocide part. And that's essentially what we're trying to do now. We're trying to be like, hey, it's not, it's not our fault how this happened, you know, and it goes to the extreme of somebody like Tom Cotton, 
you know, who, who equated Justice Jackson with Nazis, said she would have been defending the Nazis had the Nuremberg trials been today. That's probably one of the most shameless, deceitful, disgusting things that a U.S. senator has ever said. You know, and that's a senator, by the way, who lied about being an army ranger when he was running in Arkansas, where he's from. And he's got two degrees from Harvard, undergrad and Harvard Law, JD degree. Right. This guy's a rich punk. You know, his family has a dairy farm in Alabama. I mean, Arkansas. Pardon me. I know there's a difference. I don't know what it is, but there probably is a difference. But more teeth in, in Arkansas. And you all had Bill Clinton. But anyway, I'm joking. Alabama, actually Huntsville has one of the highest amounts of PhDs in the country around Huntsville from NASA and all that. But, you know, and people aren't stupid in the South. We say these generalizations, but they're not stupid. Okay. But they're living under political rule that, that keeps a lot of them very poor because the ones that have all the money want to keep all the money and they like it that way. And those tend to be white politicians. But anyway, back to Tom Cotton who looks and is named like somebody, if I was casting, you know, I've said this before, I think on the show, but if I was casting like, you know, a civil war drama and wanted a mean ass plantation owner, that's my guy, right? He looks like the family bullwhip is handed down through the generations. Okay. So here's a guy when he was running in Arkansas that told everybody he was an army ranger. He is a vet, you know, he did serve in Iraq and stuff, but he said he was an army ranger. Instead, he went to Army Ranger School, which is leadership school, which is way different. It's an eight-week course, and it's open to anybody in the armed services. It's quite different than being an Army Ranger, which is like, you know, Green Beret, you know, Navy SEAL kind of elite, you know, badass troops. But anyway, stolen valor, right? Had a Democrat done that, you would never hear the end of it. Republicans don't bring it up. They don't tell on each other and they have no qualms about doing what he did this week, which is calling a, you know, a judicial nominee, a pedophile and pro-Nazi, you know, while you're representing the party that brought Nazis back to the forefront in American politics. You know, Paul Gosar is speaking at a Nazi rally on Hitler's birthday, Right. Like that's, in, he is like in a matter of days or weeks. I don't know when Hitler's birthday is, <laughs> thankfully, you know, but uh, it's insane, you know, and it's the same sort of crap that I'm talking about every week. And I appreciate, appreciate you guys listening because it doesn't change. It's stuck on the same channel in this country. And the end game is to wear us all down, right? And the people that are participating in the wearing down are making a lot of money off it. You know, when I started this little rant talking about the mainstream media, you got to pay attention to that, you know, and I'm not talking about individual reporters. You know, I love Nicole Wallace. I love Joy Reid. Rachel Maddow is coming back on tonight if you're listening to this show and, and a great timing, too, because hopefully she'll dive into what happened in Texas where they arrested a woman for having a miscarriage, which is, you know, today that D.A. dropped the charges. But just the fact that that almost that that did happen. You know, that this woman was held over the weekend on a $500,000 bond bail, right? For going to the hospital for a miscarriage, which is already trauma and nobody's damn business except for to help the woman that's going through it, you know, with healthcare and counseling and whatever the heck she needs, 
you know, for the trauma that's happening in her body to punish somebody like that, you know, and the doctors and nurses are the ones that turned her in and called the cops, which is a big story that's not going away and a warning sign, you know, and a warning shot in this war that they're going to prosecute from the right, from the Christo fascist standpoint, right? That's scary stuff. We're in scary times. So Rachel Maddow coming back now is perfect because she, she can handle that. And she's a great reporter. As I said, Joy Reid, Nicole Wallace, you know, you know, Ari Velshi. And it's not Ari, Avi, what's his name? You guys know who I'm talking about. You know, Ari Melber, Velshi. I don't know what Velshi's first name is, but that guy filled in for Maddow and, you know, was over in Ukraine for six weeks, you know, which I can't even imagine. You know, I, I feel like I, I need therapy for things I saw on Facebook this week, right? You know, we heard about, as I talked about last week, you know, in the, the show before that, we, 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 we learned what they did in Buka and all these other villages. But now we're in a time where we see it. You know, I saw it on my timeline. I saw something on my timeline Monday, you know, a photograph I'll live with for the rest of my days, you know, that I couldn't even tell those closest to me about it was so traumatic and I didn't want to share it to them. Not saying it like I'm the victim. I'm saying they're victimizing people and we're seeing it. You know, it's like if you had Twitter in World War II and everybody had a, you know, camera on their phone, it would have been a lot different. And, and we're in that time now, you know, we're seeing these atrocities in real time and they're disgusting and they're horrible. I mean, these guys are, you know, these guys are monsters, just straight monsters. And, uh, you know, we need media, right? Media is not the bad guys. And we've lost already way too many journalists trying to tell these story, this story and document this. And these are brave people that are going to carry these scars, whether they're physical or emotional for the rest of their lives, right? So there's no more noble profession in my mind, you know, than journalism. So when I talk about this, I'm not attacking journalists, but I'm attacking the corporate structure, you know, that, that doesn't ask the tough questions that keeps putting these jokers on the morning shows, you know, CBS hired Mick Mulvaney, like, are you kidding me? Mick Mulvaney was the guy who helped Trump shake down Zelensky. You know, he's probably as responsible, you know, as anybody, you know, beyond Putin, right? And beyond Trump himself, uh, responsible for making Zelensky's life and the life of the Ukrainian people's hell. You know, these guys own part of those pictures that I'm seeing. They own part of somebody's dog getting eaten, you know? And then they leave the, you know, the paws nailed to the fucking person's wall, which I saw, you know, heinous stuff, Game of Thrones level stuff with these scumbags that are coming in from Chechnya and stuff, these sicko forces that Putin has, right? It's like Game of Thrones. And a guy like Mick Mulvaney helped Trump shake down Zelensky. Now he's got a job at CBS. He's going to be a commentator, you know, and their response for the hire was that they think the Republicans are going to take back the House in the midterm, so they want to be prepared. What, to lie? You know, you want to be prepared for when, like, Lauren Boebert gets up and tries to, like, uh, you know, introduce articles of impeachment against Biden? You want to have somebody on hand to help that propaganda? Yeah, you do, right? Because you know that's going to be bigger bucks for your shareholders. 
you know, and we're in a country that like has become numb to a lot of that stuff, you know, or you just tune out and you don't pay attention to how this stuff works and these guys get away with it, you know, and, and it's dangerous because the results are what happens in Ukraine and that could happen here. You know, we're not going to get attacked like that by another power, but we could have, you know, we could have guerrilla warfare MAGA style folks in our streets blowing up Planned Parenthoods. I mean, they already do. Right. But Trump is basically begging them to do it at every rally. He was attacking transgender kids last night in his rally and the people are clapping. You know, the people that probably all have guns. It was in North Carolina. Right. These guys all have weapons. Right. So he's going to say those people are evil. You know, go attack them. They're pedophiles. They're Satanists, as Marjorie Taylor Greene says every week. That's insane. You know, and, and, and these people are already given to violence. They're already obsessed with violence. They've been fed a diet of violence. They raise their kids to shoot people on video games for fun. You know, they go hunting like it's their heritage. Some hunting's fun, but you don't hunt with a, you know, AR-15, right? <laughs> so it's scary. And if you don't think that violence could happen here, you're blind because fascism is on the march. Will it win? No. Love and truth will prevail. I believe that or I wouldn't bother speaking, right? I'd be out of here. I wouldn't be out of here because I'm not a coward. But like, you know, I, I think justice and democracy is going to win in the end. It always does. You know, that's what all our great prophets have told us, you know, from Dr. King, Gandhi, you know, but the sacrifices are immense and people are paying with their lives right now. And people are profiting that are standing on the sidelines, you know, and that's inexcusable. You know, that's what has to change. And that's what we can all participate on. That's where we can all activate, you know, our outrage and do something about it. Not just click on donate here and make another video and send it to my friends that already believe the way I do, you know, but get out there and try to change hearts and minds. You know, everybody does hashtag resistor. Like, be a conscious resistor in your own life when you hear somebody say something homophobic or racist. Say, hey, why are you saying that? You know, even if it's your family member, even if it's your friend, say, look, I love you, man, but where, do you, where did that thinking come from in you? Do you just not know any gay people? Do you just believe somebody telling you that somebody who doesn't look like you is out to hurt you? Do you believe Fox News telling you the cities are, you know, overrun with home, home, homeless, you know, people without homes, like just trying to kill you as you walk down the street? Like, you know, where is all this fear coming from and why are you holding on to it? You know, and that's not to say we don't have problems. We do. There's an epidemic, you know, of violence and and, you know housing insecure people. And, you know, the mayor in New York just destroyed all their camps. They're all sleeping under the BQE. It's still winter here. We're in our six month of winter. If you live on the East Coast, right? It's April 10th. It's 43 degrees out today and cloudy. It's been cold since November and cold, cold, you know, January, February, 19 degrees out. These people are sleeping outside on the asphalt in a cardboard box or a tent 
you know, with whatever possessions they've been able to collect to give them some dignity and comfort under that circumstance, living under a highway. And you're going to go destroy it, which is what the mayor did this week. They went and cleaned out all these encampments, you know, with the DPS, you know, with the sanitation service, just threw all these people's lives away. You know, it's not their fault. Yeah, they have problems and they need help, but you help them, you know, and is we're just going to put them all in the shelters. We've heard that game before, you know, and I have friends that are housing insecure and they're like, look, the shelters are horrific. You know, I'd rather sleep on a bench or sleep in the park than the shelters where I'm in danger. You know, so we have a massive humanitarian crisis in this country that we need to deal with, that we need to spend a lot of money on a lot of the best hearts and minds need to like tackle these issues. And, and this is where we can provide real security and safety to people, not manipulating the fear to sell more guns or to sell a crooked politician, you know, who's just going to denigrate a city like Trump does. Nobody talks more shit about New York city than Trump, the city that made him, you know, that looked the other way when he built buildings with the mob for 40 years, you know, that let his idiot children become socialites and models and stuff when none of them were paying taxes, right? And now they diss it. Half of their buildings are empty. Nobody wants to live in a Trump building. Open them up, you know, turn them into homeless shelters, turn some of these office buildings, you know, I don't just mean open the door and, and, you know, screw over the landlords, but like we can come up with solutions, right? Let's get some of these yachts we're confiscating from oligarchs, put them in the Hudson, put them in the East River, you know, turn them into medical clinics, let people who don't have homes walk onto that, you know, a nurse ship and get looked at, you know, give them a meal and a shower and like, you know, point them in the direction of help and recovery. You know, we're all in this together. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we all have better lives, you know, and the the central tenet of greed is that none of that will affect me. And New York is a great example of it will always affect you. You know, you can be at 71st and Fifth Avenue, right? But you still got to walk out and get in your town car, you know, out on, on the street, right? And there still could be somebody sleeping there on the pavement, right? So you can't hide from it in New York. You can you know, you can insulate yourself from it, but you can't not see it, you know, in the way you could say in the Pacific Palisades or something. So in my mind, that's always been one of the blessings of New York City, you know, because worlds combine and that's where interesting stuff happens. You know, I've been watching the Warhol Diaries doc on Netflix and, you know, it's fascinating because you know, it's a great telling of New York and a great telling, uh, you know, of an artist who I happen to respect because, because, you know, he, he sort of foresaw a lot of the things in our culture. Now he basically invented reality TV. If you remember Andy Warhol TV, you know, in the early eighties, YouTube, all that kind of stuff, you know, he didn't invent YouTube. I'm saying he, he, that kind of content, you know, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes, right? Just sort of, you know, you are the art project, right? It's almost like yourself as performance art has had that has become ubiquitous in our culture. You know, Kim Kardashian is it's performance art, right? You know, it's my butt. 
and my lips or whatever, you know, and who I'm banging this week. Like that's who's going to, you know, that's what the world is tuning in to see. And you're watching it like you'd watch, you know, a painting or a car crash or something, <laughs> depending on your point of view. And I was, and, and he photographed car, car crashes, right? That's if, if you know Warhol's work, that was some of his early uh, work, but um, guy was an artist to the end. But, you know, when you get into the eighties, you know, when, when he hooks up with, you know, Jean-Michel Basquiat, who was, you know, Samo, who was a, a graffiti artist, you know, it said Samo on subways all over New York City before he became an artist, right? And then that sort of hip hop culture and graffiti culture, you know, co-mingled in downtown New York and in the nightclubs with the Upper East Side, you know, with, with rich artists. You know, Warhol lived in a townhouse in the 60s, right? You know, he's hanging out with heiresses and stuff. He has patrons, you know, he sells a portrait for, you know, a hundred grand, you know, and he's knocking out 10 of them a day or whatever. Like he's a wealthy man who hangs out with wealthy people, but he loses his sort of creative artistic fire until he mixes again with that downtown world, you know, and then in, informs the culture. Right. And it makes a better artist, you know, and it makes a star out of Jean-Michel Basquiat, you know, who's like a broke guy, you know, he wasn't broke, you know, when, when, when he obviously started selling paintings, but now his paintings sell for a hundred million dollars. He's sadly no longer with us, but you know, that, and he was impactful, you know, that's impactful art. There's a new retrospective opening it just opened in new york city i think yesterday i'm going this week of his work I, i'm a big fan right and he's obviously massive influence and, and keith herring you know his buddy same sort of story you know those guys did it man like you see their influence right but that wouldn't have happened without the mixture of worlds which was new york city right cbgb's you know all this downtown kind of like grungy you know, Thompson Square Park, you know, junkie life, you know, got picked up by the suits uptown. And they said, we can make some money off this. And all of a sudden, you know, the Ramones go out to the world and everybody hears it, you know, and kids like are listening in their basements, you know, that end up forming bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and stuff, you know, and all of that stuff mixes, you know, in a place like New York City when it functions at its best you know, and it's a harsher life if you're on the bottom of that scale, but you have the opportunity to create and, and hopefully have your art rise up, you know, and sort of get discovered, you know, and there's all kinds of politics and tastemakers involved in that. But my point being is a functioning, healthy city with a diversity of culture and opportunities for all makes the world richer. It's our greatest export. And if we've learned anything about the American experiment, you know, it's who we are as a people that has the most influence on the rest of the world. And who we are as a people is most strengthened by our diversity. Jean-Michel Basquiat was the son of a Haitian professional, you know, and his mom was a painter and he grew up in Brooklyn and she took him to museums, which were free because it was pre-Giuliani shutting everything down, you know? And it was right around the time Reagan was defunding everything. But my point is he had access to culture and he had a spark of brilliance already in him, 
you know, and it came out and was nurtured by a city. And again, you know, it, he's now the loved artist around the world and it, and it shapes the world. And that's the stuff, you know, that's the magic that can happen, you know, and that's the stuff that I fear we lose when we turn our backs on people, you know, when we view them as the enemy, you know, something to just be cleaned up, you know? Basquiat was sleeping in his studio, you know, when he had a studio, right? Basically homeless at times. You know, he was one of those people that Eric Adams would be attacking now in Brooklyn. You know, I guarantee you there's some creative people living under those, you know, overpasses, you know, that haven't gotten their shit together yet. So compassion, culture, right? Equanimity access, right? Doesn't mean some people can't get rich and some people, you know, are always going to stay poor, (laughs) you know, like if you don't get over your own addictions and stuff, you know, you're screwed, but you can have a fighting shot, you know, and and you never know who's going to change the world, right? Steve Jobs, you know, we're talking about Paul Allen or whatever before, you know, I've been watching all these these tech, you know, documentaries, not documentaries, these series I'm fascinated with, but, um, you know, Steve Jobs, you're starting something, you're starting something in your garage, you know, that's going to change the world. You know, that, that, that is the spirit of America innovation, you know, development, but now it seems so many people want to fix the playing field and make it impossible. You know, they want to crush it all the competition, right? Now somebody has a startup turns into a big company or a media company and they want to snuff out the competition. They want to buy up all their competitors. They want all the money to flow through them. That's the Jeff Bezos approach, right? When he started Amazon, right? He just bought up all the other people that were selling their wares on there, ran them out of business. Now he's the only guy you can buy half this crap from, you know? So it's that pulling the ladder up behind you thing that I always hate, you know, and, and it's the, the fierce competitiveness, you know, competition is good. It's what makes business run. It's what makes sports run. It's what makes schools run. You got to keep score, right? But you don't have to make it unfair for your fellow humans, right? It's like, I always use the analogy about the yachts. You know, when I see the super yachts in Nantucket, you don't get a yacht like that without hurting somebody. You know, you can't can't consume that much resource without somebody else suffering somewhere. And that's the kind of stuff people don't want to talk about that much. You know, that's the kind of stuff it's complicated to explain. And it's, you know, it it ain't profitable. You know, you're you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to get a primetime show uh, on the network talking about that kind of stuff, <laughs> but, um, you can talk about it on my podcast, right? So I'm ranting about it every week. And, uh, you know, some of these docs, I haven't talked about entertainment in a while because it's just me, but the one about the Uber guy, especially stands out, um, Travis Kalanick, Kalanick, and, uh, it's Kalanick. It sounds like something you, you know, something you wash out your colon with. But anyway, and that's pretty apt description of who the guy was, right? And and it, and it's an example of just moral depravity and greed run amok and not caring 
you know, about people getting murdered in your cars and stuff, which happened, you know, and sexual assaults. And his, his company was like, you know, it was like me too's worst nightmare, <laughs> you know, and it's well-documented. And if you watch it, you'll, you'll be entertained because it's very well done. It has a fantastic cast. And then the other one I've been enjoying is the one called WeWork on the, the WeWork guy. And that one is just amazing because that one has uh what's his name? Jared Leto. And the, the woman who was like, oh God, I can't remember her name. Black hair, pretty was like uh, Anne Hathaway, right? And Anne Hathaway is killing it. And she plays this character, which is clearly based on, you know, Ivanka Trump and like Gwyneth Paltrow. And she just nails it. You know, it's a phenomenal performance and she chews up the scenery and skewers, you know, that sort of like uber wealthy, new agey kind of BS, right? And I'm a new age kind of dude, right? I say mantras every day, you know, I'm a yoga guy. I'm not, I'm not dissing new age, but like, you know, her husband's like complete, like reprobate, you know, reprobate and like just immensely irresponsible with this incredible wealth and opportunity to employ a bunch of people, you know, and he's just like, got the same killer be killed, you know, I can't be stopped attitude. And the problem in both of those cases is is that both of those guys left with billions of dollars. Okay, they're worth they're 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 both worth more than 1 billion. Travis, I think is worth two. And the WeWork guy is worth one or two. So they both left these disasters of companies with more money than they'll ever need or anybody with their last name will ever need, you know, for a hundred lifetimes. And in the case of the WeWork guy, all his employees had these stock options because everybody who comes on board with these things, you, you, you get in early and you get these stock options and then the company goes public and all of a sudden you're worth $20 million, you know, or more or $10 million or half a billion dollars, depending on how many shares, but the whole gig, you know, with these startups is that you're going to become you know, one of the founders and the early employees. And, and we have a zillion examples of that. You know, somebody who worked at Apple early and all this stuff, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good, sweet gig if you can get it, right? So all these guys that we work, that's what they were working for. They're working for this maniac for years because of these stock options. And when it finally goes public, your shares are going to make it so you never have to work again and nobody in your family will. And what happens, Right. This guy screws it up so bad that it never goes public. I'm not spoiling the show for you. That's, you know, that's common knowledge, hopefully. But my point is all those employees get screwed. None of them get a payoff. And he gets to ride into the sunset, right? Because it never goes public. Their shares are worthless, essentially. You know, they don't mean anything. So he gets to misbehave and then get away with it and make a lot of money. And that seems to be a theme in this country, right? And that seems to be something that we are not punishing, you know, we're not reacting to with the right sense of moral outrage. Yeah, it's cool to make a Netflix series, but, you know, you can see where this, this episode is going in terms of wrapping that up, right? Because I started off saying, you know, we're in a foot race. DOJ is in a foot race with the calendar, you know, with the midterms, and then with 2024, which Trump is campaigning for and not announcing his candidacy. So he doesn't have to be within FEC guidelines and report his money or be told what he has to do with it, right? He's in no violation. Now he can spend it on anything he wants. And he is, (laughs) you know, 
but he ain't spending it on his campaign, right? Because he's already got people in place to keep his name in the news, right? But he's grifting people right in broad daylight and no one's stopping him yet. You know, it came out on Friday that Don Jr. texted Mark Meadows, you know, and said, hey, we have operational control. Let's just call this thing. Let's just make this happen for Trump. Two days after the election, before it had been called yet, right? When the votes were still being counted, scrump, little cokehead, you know, drunky McDrunk asshole who got his ass kicked at the comedy cellar, you know, 20 years ago for being a big drunk. I like to tell that story because people forgot it, you know, and he was dry when I worked around that family, but he relapsed, you know, and now he's in a full Coke meltdown every night in his little videos, right? Except for last two nights, because he hasn't tweeted since the story broke, right? But the story breaks on Friday that he's texting Mark Meadows and basically talking about overturning the election, right? The most nefarious stuff you could think of this kid is doing. This kid who's not supposed to be involved in any way in the White House, right? The whole gig when Trump took office was, I'm going to you know, step away from the company and Don Jr. is going to run it. And I'm going to not know anything about what's involved, which we all know was BS because there's nothing Trump cares about more than his company. So I guarantee you he was taking calls every night in the residency, you know, residents talking to his kids about what the company was doing. And he was probably doing a lot of that in the morning in between snorting Adderall and sitting there in his depends, you know, for executive time which is what they called the fact that he didn't show up in the Oval Office till noon every day, which is a point I constantly point out because the guy's got the most powerful, important job in the world. He's not showing up till noon. Can you, can you even comprehend that? And he's new to the job, right? Because the job only lasts for four years. So he was doing that in his first couple of months. Can you, could you even comprehend not being early for like the most important job in the world? You'd be down sitting behind your desk at seven in the morning, if you were a functional human being, but he was worrying about his own interests and his son was breaking the law by consulting his father with this. And then his son was like, all right, let me get involved in keeping my dad in power. Let me text the White House chief of staff, the same guy who was receiving texts from Ginny Thomas telling him to release the Kraken, right? So all these operatives were corrupting a free and fair democratic election on behalf of a would-be authoritarian, and nobody was stopping it. Yet at the same time, they were demonizing Hunter Biden, who's sober, you know, who was, you know, a drug-addicted person who got sober, you know, as I have been an M. You know what I mean? There's no shame in your game. Addiction is not shameful. It's a medical issue. If you get help for it, but they demonized it, even though the kid who was doing that, you know, most of the memes you see on Hunter Biden start coming out of Don Jr.'s Twitter account. He had one last week where he was slapping Hunter Biden who had a crack pipe in his mouth. You know, Don Jr. probably had half of Bolivia up his left nostril when he tweeted that thing. OK, he's as coked out as you could be. They probably show his videos in rehabs like to be like, this is what you don't want to do. And don't get me started on Larry Kudlow and Bill Barr, who the night before this information came out, by the way, were on Fox News saying that the election was potentially rigged before the voting began, right? 
And the reason I'm sure they were saying that is because word had already leaked that in Ivanka's testimony, she confirmed that they had in their possession these texts from Don Jr. to Mark Meadows. So they needed a workaround, right? So they had Bill Barr and Larry Kudlow, you know, who was a crackhead, who was my neighbor on 93rd Street in the same situation, somebody who was sober and relapsed and took a job in Trump and, you know, ended up drunk on the Sunday morning shows every day for four years. Pathetic guy. He's an asshole. You know, it's a separate subject, but I can't stand that guy. And uh, as you can tell, but uh, because I know him personally and, uh, you know, and again, I'm not denigrating people with addictions, but if you're an active addiction and you're messing around with the levers of government, get the hell out of here. If you're blaming your opponent for the same thing and trying to demonize his son, right, who wasn't even in power, you know, whose father wasn't in power yet at that point, the stuff they're trying to nail Hunter on, Biden wasn't president then. You know, but it doesn't matter. It's like I said at the top of the show, whoever lies loudest wins. Right. So that's where they're at. And this story breaks on Friday. You know, the upteenth smoking gun or as Larry's tribe called it, a smoking rifle, like a stunning revelation coming a week after, you know, we learned that seven and a half hours are missing from the White House call logs on January 6th. Right. We're learning that on November 5th or whenever, Don Jr. is texting Mark Meadows, you know, saying, we got this. We control the levers of power. We have operational control. I hate this faux military speak they all use too, but and that's Don Jr. If you know him, he's always been a little wannabe, you know, military guy. And his dad said he'd disown him if he actually joined the Marines. It shows you how much, you know, Trump thinks about the military. And we already know he thinks they're losers and suckers, Right. But anyway, they're all cosplay warriors. So this news breaks on Friday with Don Jr. You know, and it's outrageous. And it makes its round on Twitter. And then the next day, it's on page A15 of the New York Times, right? It's not a headline above the fold. It's on A15 in the same city where the Manhattan DA just wrapped up his investigation essentially into Trump. You know, he sent out a statement, said it's still going on, but it's not going on. They sent the witness information back. They sent the evidence back to the witnesses. Michael Cohn was on a podcast, you know, on a news show this weekend saying, yeah, they haven't contacted me since, you know, since they made that statement. Since he was a witness and he's not a credible witness because of, you know, he went to prison and stuff, you know, but he was cooperating and there's other cooperating witnesses as I covered, you know. Weisselberg's daughter-in-law gave him all kinds of materials. This material has now been sent back and the grand jury is closing. So in the city that's giving Trump yet another pass, the paper of record, which happens to be, you know, the paper of record for pretty much the rest of the United States, the New York Times thinks so much of the story, they put it on A15. And by Monday morning, when you're listening to this, Monday afternoon, It's barely going to be in the headlines. It didn't become a big story because we're just beaten down by the amount of malfeasance and criminality that is coming out of these guys. And they're like jackals screaming a new lie, getting a new piece of propaganda into the discourse week after week. You know, 
that pedophile stuff will soft on pedophile stuff will follow Justice Jackson as long as she's on the bench, you know, and she'll do a wonderful job there. But, you know, these accusations when they're when they're thrown at people are weapons, it's verbal violence. And these guys know it and they're good at it. And they know that the media is essentially rigged in their favor for the reasons I've explained. Okay. And it's not an indictment of media. It's saying the top brass, you know, there's not a lot of money in that kind of thing. There's a lot of money in the Republicans coming back into power on both sides of the narrative, because all your resistors and all your video makers and all your send me money to my pack guys are going to have another reason to manipulate your anger. We'll get them in 2028. You won't be here by 2028, right? Like this country won't be anything that you once recognized if these guys get away with it. So again, it's a foot race, right? It's a foot race to November, you know, and that story with Don Jr. should have been huge, right? And it was big, but it's not, it's not big if you turn on the TV right now, you know, and we also have, you know, we shouldn't even have to be talking about this, right? The wheels of justice should have turned quicker and, and Trump should already be in legal peril you know, in terms of like the machinations of justice, he should already be in the system, so to speak. You know, this stuff should be going on where they know they're getting prosecuted and they're laying low, not having rallies, not raising more money, not building an army of cultists out there in the streets with their giant pickup trucks and their flags ready to defend the virtuous against evil, you know, satanic pedophiles. It's insanity. You know, and this is all going on under the backdrop of the most horrific war we've seen in Europe since World War II, where we're watching a genocide in real time. You know, they bombed a railway station in eastern Ukraine over the weekend where people were escaping. A thousand people were standing on the platform, men and women and children thinking they were going to get out of this hell, waiting for the train that was going to take them to freedom that their kid might live. Can you imagine what a mother's feeling holding her kid's hand, thinking, man, 20 more minutes and that train comes and I get to get my child out of here. You know, and then you hear an explosion and then 10 more missiles rain down on you. Right? And 50 women and children are killed. Hundreds are injured. That's torture, man. You know? That's abhorrent. That's a war crime. That's genocide. That's horror. And it's happening day after day all over this country of Ukraine, you know? So against that, you know, we have this sort of stuff going on in this country. You know, people pushing for the same sort of values that Putin is pushing for, for propaganda, for white Christian nationalists, for demonizing your opponent and eradicating them. That should strike fear in the hearts of everyone. You know, the first round of the French election was today and Macron thankfully beat Le Pen, who's Putin's puppet. She's a Nazi. She's a Nazi sympathizer, daughter of a famous, you know, French Nazi. Right. Nazis, you know, dude, obviously the French, you know, weren't Nazis, but a lot of them were into the Nazis, you know, and a lot of them were killed by the Nazis. Right. So to think that a Nazi candidate could get 23 percent of the vote 
and you know macron got 28 which is a hopeful sign and i think the real the next election is in three weeks so he's going to win but that's too close for comfort it's spreading fascism is spreading you know orban hungary cpac's going to be there next week you know all these republicans that i mentioned week in week out on this show are going to be flying to hungary a country run by a dictator an anti-LGBTQ dictator, just like Putin and just like Trump. And these guys are going to go kiss his ring, you know, and spew their MAGA hatred on foreign soil. That's insane in the name of Christianity. You know, Tucker Carlson broadcasts his show from there. It's nuts, right? It's nuts. Okay. But we're going to be okay. Ultimately, we pay attention. We don't lose sight of these stories like Don Jr. Catalog it. Put it in your brain. You know, see how it all fits together. Be outraged when Mick Mulvaney gets hired by CBS and think maybe I don't need to watch The Survivor, you know, which was a Mark Burnett production, the same guy who gave you Trump on behest, you know, at request of Putin and the oligarchs to whitewash the image of their money launderer in New York City and make them ready for primetime American politics, which Mark Burnett did. You know, he filtered the image that the guy was a billionaire. He wasn't a billionaire. He wasn't even close to it, as I've said many times, right? So it's all related. Pay attention, you know, take a time out if you need it. Timelines can be crazy. I'm taking a Twitter break myself. It's too exhausting. You know, Any, anything you post, people are just compelled to put their stupid crap in your replies. And, and even people on the left don't realize how exhausting they are. You know, I appreciate the encouragement and nice people, but some people are just being idiots. It's like being like, you know, with just recalcitrant high school kids sometimes, just people just being obnoxious. Like people are dying. As I said, I saw things on there that were horrific. That will scar me for life. And it's not about me, but I'm saying like, that's the, the level of what we're dealing with. This isn't jokey joke time right now. You know, this is all hands on deck. Fight for democracy. Fight for those children. Fight for those mothers that thought they were going to get on a train to freedom. And were lying in the street, you know, a minute later. And now they're in a bag, you know. Fight for the 700 people they just pulled out of a mass grave in one town alone. You know, that's what we're facing with. And the things that made that happen, some of them began here and some of them were, were encouraged from here. And there's still people here profiting from the man who's persecuting that war. And don't ever lose sight of these scumbags, these Mitch McConnells, these Lindsey Grahams who probably turned in the most hateful, vitriolic performance. And another drunk, clearly a drunk. Look at his face. He's like an ad for Betty Ford, like puffy face. He's seeing the bedevilments every morning. The four horsemen are coming for that little dude, okay? And not in the way that might be found pleasurable. <laughs> you know, you guys in the rooms will know what I mean by the four horsemen. That guy's clearly in the thralls of addiction, you know? And he's sitting up there spewing these lies. And it goes to character. You know, it goes to like moral clarity. And there's a huge lack of it on the right. So we need to make up 
for that and view these people as sick and suffering and corrupted by greed, you know, but that will harm us. You don't let the drunk guy drive, so to speak. And the drunk guy's been driving for many years now. And it's time to pull the car over, put him in handcuffs and throw him in jail. All right. So that's the week, man. Episode 58. I hope you guys have a good week. Look forward to talking to you next week. I did the dulcimer performance at the beginning. That's for one of our listeners, Barbara, who requested it. Thanks to all you guys who send me these kind notes. Thanks to the new listeners. Shout out to our buddy Jeff over there in the Greek islands. Saw a picture of my man kite surfing, dude. He's kite surfing in cerulean blue waters while we're freezing our asses off. And he's an East Coast boy. So, you know, I'll cut him some slack and hope he enjoys himself. But shout out to you. Shout out to all you guys. Stay safe. Peace and love. And I'll talk to you next week. Bye.